0: The Speaking of Cults podcast is presented solely for general informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from it is at the user's own risk. The views, information, or opinions expressed by the host and guests are solely those of the individuals involved and do not constitute medical or other professional advice. Hello and welcome to the Speaking of Cults podcast. I'm still getting that new name wrapped around in my mouth here after years of sensibly speaking, but we are now the Speaking of Cults podcast. Welcome to the show. And as you can see, I am joined this week by someone I am very happy to be talking with. This is Dr. Jessica Schleider. She is the founding director, and I'm reading this to make sure I get it right, of the Lab for Scalable Mental Health. And she is a Harvard-trained clinical psychologist, Dr. Schleider. Lighter, Welcome to my show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for, for this. Now, you have uh, just put out a new book called Little Treatments, Big Effects, uh, How to Build Meaningful Moments that Can Transform Your Mental Health. And in looking over this book, you, sent, you were, kindly sent me a copy and I got to go through it. Uh, I'm, I am impressed and, and happy to have you here to talk about some of the problems and issues with mental health treatment these days and uh, your academically peer-reviewed studies of how we might actually be able to do something about this in shorter bursts, not longer you know, let's get everybody onto 12 years of psychoanalysis. That's the obviously the solution to the big problem of mental health these days. Maybe not. Maybe you have some other ideas, and I am intrigued by them. And I think all of this goes hand in hand with what I talk about all the time of cult recovery. Uh, because I uh, talk about trauma and talk about things that people need to get past, and it's not necessarily that it creates... Uh, mental health, insanity, and in everybody who's ever part of a cult—that's not the point. But people who come out of those situations, uh, as well as domestic abusive situations, etc., certainly could use some good mental health therapy <laughs> and treatment to deal with that trauma. So, again, um, welcome to the show. Maybe we could start with uh, maybe the bad, and then we can get into the good. Of what's your view on, and in, in your book on? Uh, the problems with current with the, with the current mental health system as it's put together and as people access it?
1: Oh there are so many problems mm. where to begin. So just... I've spent the last how many years now uh, almost 12, 15 years or so working in the mental health care ecosystem as a clinician, as a researcher. Um, it's my entire professional life, and every year I become more convinced that the system we currently have is bananas, <laughs> um, yes. for lack of a better term.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's a technical can, term. Yeah, I, I get yeah, that. The, yeah. the
1: technical, that's that's what I learned in my PhD program. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so
0: it's, It could even be said to be wacko.
1: It could even, I mean, one might say.
0: Yeah, if you really wanted to go out on a limb.
1: Um, so I say that for a couple of reasons. One is just the state of who can access treatment and who can't, um, hypothetically, like theoretically, if you think about mental health care, you think it's something that most people should be able to get like physical health care, go to a primary care doctor, get seen, get kind of support. Uh, but with mental health, it's actually entirely different. About half of adults who have significant mental health needs never access any treatment at all. Mm-hmm. And that number is up to 80% for folks under 18 years old. Um, there are so many contributors to this. First of all, there's a massive shortage of trained professionals. Uh, most of the counties in the United States are federally designated mental health care provider shortage areas, which is really wild. That's, a, that's, uh, an, actual, mag-
0: that's an actual designation for an area?
1: Yes. Yes. Hmm. I And every talk that I give, I show this very sad map um, of all the areas in the U.S. shaded in dark blue that are federally designated shortage areas for mental health care. And the whole map is dark blue. <laughs> it's outrageous, but it's true. There are a couple of dots of non-shortage areas in New York City and Los Angeles, and that's about it. Wow. Um, so first of all, we just don't have enough providers. If we miraculously doubled the number of providers available in the country today, we'd still fall dramatically short of people's needs. What that means is that when people
0: I saw that in your book. Let me ask you if I could. Yeah, you just. I'm sorry. I just told you after you said um, what that means is. But I what 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 is the number of adequate then? What what would the ratio be, or how is that determined? Just so I'll know what the metric is because I'm curious.
1: Absolutely. So the shortage area designation is based on a couple of different metrics. One is how far do people have to drive to get to a licensed professional, mm. <laughs> like physically. How far are they from a professional person? Okay. Um, but the ratio. I mean, it depends on population density and a multitude of other factors, um, but currently the ratio is something between 500 and a thousand to a thousand to one. To 1. Um, and in schools, for example, um, there's one mental health care provider for optimistically 800 to thousand students right. in school settings, right. which is just completely like the the severity of that disconnect is really. Uh, difficult to swallow right. um, but the bottom line is the shortage is so immense and overwhelming uh, that the system is totally backed up mm-hmm. um, when people do search for care if they're lucky enough to live in an area where they can easily access a professional person and their insurance will cover that professional person which often it won't That's right. uh, because providers are disincentivized from accepting insurance because insurance companies will not pay therapists enough to use, to go through insurance, um, on the off chance they can find somebody in their area who takes their insurance, the likelihood that they'll be facing a waiting list of multiple months is extremely high. Right. Um, and uh, several people I talked to in writing this book over and over again would explain to me that the best way to access care is to have a mental health emergency to be in a state of acute crisis. And in that case, you'll go to the emergency room and be seen potentially in an inpatient setting, but it's a totally reactive system. There's nothing proactive about it. And as a result, people aren't getting support until for many it's too late. Um, And on top of that, the treatments that have been developed for years and years, the treatments I was trained to deliver as a clinical psychology PhD student, as a therapist, don't actually fit with how people access (laughs) treatments. So uh, on average, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: interventions, evidence-based psychotherapies, uh, are designed to last between 12 and 16 weekly sessions, which sounds reasonable, three or four months of treatment. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the rates of people actually accessing care, actually getting in the door and seeing someone, The average number of sessions that folks attend in reality is between three and four. And the most common number of encounters people have is one with mental health care.
0: Wow. They go, don't like it, or for whatever other reason, don't go back.
1: Exactly. Either they don't like it or there's self-stigma related to seeking out treatment or it's expensive, or it's inconvenient, or right, or, or right. the list goes on. But there are a million and one reasons why people aren't able to or can't or don't want to keep going.
0: So, we, so what
1: that... It, oh yeah, go ahead. Uh,
0: sorry, it's just interesting to me because obviously when I'm confronted with questions about psychological treatments or treatment modalities or the workability of this, or is this peer-reviewed, or is this, you know, does this work? We're always leaping right to the methodology or the modality, and yet when we look at the big, broad picture of unworkability with these treatments, what we're, what, what, you're indicating already is, no, people just aren't even getting to them, much less exactly. we're, now we're going to hyper-focus on a very small number of people who are getting these treatments yes. and look at their efficacy.
1: But Exactly.
0: You know, look, look at the big piece of the pie here that's not even getting there. That's more the bigger picture problem here.
1: Exactly. Our entire evidence base is based on this privileged sliver of people right. who managed to get through all of these obstacles right. to get treatment and to be in a research study at that, which is a whole different, you know, set of barriers and, and, right. and difficulties. So what we, what we think of is evidence-based, and I say this as a scientist, is not generalizable or representative of the full population at all. And it's systematically missing people who are facing the most barriers to accessing mental health care.
0: Now, let me let me make sure I understand what you're saying and and maybe help the audience along at the same time, because we've seen in my education, I was you know looking at statistics and having to kind of dive into that whole topic. It became clear very quickly in reading through, you know, critical as well as positive, um, you know, analyses and, and how to do it and that, cor- that sort of thing. That that it was that it was very interesting. And in fact, I think this was actually in a book um, written by a neuroscientist on on the brain. Anyway, it, the point was that a lot of the surveys work and experimental work that gets done by universities that gets published in psychological journals and about psychology happens to be done on psych students or university students or people who happen to live around the university because that's who they have access to. And so it's not that it's bad research, but it's, as you just mentioned, it's not generalizable. It doesn't, you can't say that a Boston or a Philadelphia or, you know, I don't know wherever Stanford is, you know, Californian housewife, Or college student is the same as a person in Sweden or a person in Norway or Indonesia or Africa, yet we take these things and we generalize them out that way. Is that kind of what we're talking about here?
1: Absolutely. And this okay. is known as the weird problem in psychological research. The fact that all of our science focuses on Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic young people. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and um, right. it's just a very, a very helpful acronym to remember who we're really talking about uh, in a lot of this research. And the same applies to research on therapy.
0: Right. Yeah, because it's, it's it, again, it's, it's it's what's accessible or who can access it most easily. Right. And I mean, I've always said I've lucked out in terms of my therapy because I've only needed to go to a couple people before I found, you know, good mm-hmm. therapists uh, in the ex-cult world. That can be even more difficult sometimes. But for me, it hasn't been that big of an issue. Um, but I've always considered myself very lucky in this. And I'm always frustrated, um, sometimes sometimes. Teeth gnashingly so, at the stories of people that i have interviewed or, or helped who, <coughs> excuse me, can't find a yeah. good therapist or can't mm-hmm. afford it,
1: mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It comes up over and over again. Um, even among clinical psychologists, among my colleagues, when, when we experience mental health problems and we need to find somebody, often we can't. <laughs> Um, and if we can't, then who exactly can? Exactly. What does that say about the state of things?
0: Right. Exactly. It's, um, okay, so we have there, what we're talking about there is not someone's fault. It's not some dude or some woman somewhere, you know, arbitrarily making it this way. This is a systemic, a series of systemic issues we're dealing with here. Shortage of therapists in the first place. Accessibility to it because of insurance and health and various other reasons, geographical location, uh, etc. So, wow, so this is a problem. And then this is further exacerbated by... A lack of science-based, science-trained, disciplined therapists (laughs) delivering, you know, again, you mentioned 12 to 16 sessions would be sort of the expectation of what your average or mainline treatment modalities are supposed to take. In other words, supposed to take four or five months to get through it?
1: Yeah. So thinking about common evidence-based treatment approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy. Yep. that's usually a manualized treatment that lasts between 12 sessions and 16 or 20. Um, so that's, that's how these interventions that have been developed for depression, anxiety, substance use, other problems, OCD, PTSD, that's how they've been designed and tested. So when we say this is an evidence-based treatment, we're talking about the version that was in the study, that 12 to 16 session therapy.
2: Right. Right.
1: Um, first of all, there aren't a lot of people who are trained in those. And second of all, even the people who are trained in those usually don't get to deliver them properly because people don't often show up after one session or five, you know, so Mm. it's a multi-level problem going back to the design of the system, the structure of the system and how we've built treatments to exist.
0: Right. And this is where I think you mentioned in your book and certainly in some of the papers you've written about the fact that the sort of stereotypical model itself of I'm going to need to go to... Uh, it, it's kind of medical model based, I guess you could say, yes. like with the way you would go see a doctor for an illness. You're gonna, you're gonna go find somebody who is who is trained. They're 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 highly trained individuals. They're not just some guy off the street. And you're gonna get this series of treatments, and as a result of that, you're going to be cured. Or nowadays, right. maybe. More mindful and able to live with and relate with and deal with whatever it is you got going on,
1: exactly right. Mm-hmm.
0: It, that's yeah. that's like, sort of the it, like an antibiotic,
1: like a course of antibiotics, like right. eight weeks of this and you're good,
0: <laughs> right? And that's yes. kind of how we think about this. Oh, we didn't even mention um, on the earlier step, by the way, the, just the gross levels still of stigma that are connected with getting treatment oh at gosh. all.
1: Absolutely. And that that's a historical problem. I I talk about it in the book. I did a deep dive into like the history of asylums uh, and how that has created a culture of othering and stigmatizing people with mental illness, how it separated out people with mental illness from those with physical illness. And that's why our systems for treating the two are so separate and siloed from each other. Yeah, it's it's a really it, it it goes deep this this set of problems and it can be overwhelming.
0: Yeah, I, I tell you, it's true. I, it was a great section of your book on the history of that, and I love the the, the take on it because I have been exposed in the past to uh, to a lot of anti-psychiatry material that just, that just says it was all evil. It was all just motivated mm. by evil and, you know, and all of that, which assigns this whole moral thing to it too, which is not really very helpful to solve the problem <laughs> of what we're going to do about psychiatry. But you present a very, very good and interesting point that, that culturally this has been stigmatized from the very get-go. And we're not talking about a field that is dealt with, uh, you know, or thought about with compassion and tolerance and care and empathy and understanding. It's, oh, those weirdo, crazy nut jobs. We have to separate them out. And as you said, it's more custodial, it's more of a prison overwatch situation than it is let's care for these people and get them back out into society.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Oof. ugh. So we got. <laughs> not
1: great. No, it's really
0: not great, is it? No, it's not. Um, and it seems that, you know, if we stay locked into this idea, okay, as we were just going over of this stereotypical medical model of treatment, trained professional, series of, of things, and you're going to be fine. Why is that itself, that stereotype itself, part of this problem?
1: I think it's part of the problem in multiple ways. First of all, it's locking us into one set of assumptions and one way of thinking about how we can help people with mental health problems. So it's constraining what we can imagine in terms of the different solutions to this huge problem that we're facing of lack of access uh, and the inability of current treatments to meet people where they're at. Second of all, problems, mental health difficulties aren't they, they don't respond to antibiotics. Like they're not the same.
2: <laughs> right. It's
1: a very different, it's, it's a more human experience. They f- fluctuate over the course of somebody's lifetime. Experiencing a m- mental health problem now means you may recover in the future and you may struggle again later. Like there's no sort of one. Uh, multi-week intervention. that's going to solve of all of life struggles. So we've isolated the treatments that we can give people into these uh, uh, individual periods of time uh, where we expect everything to get better forever Mm -hmm. um, rather than creating a system where people can fluidly and flexibly seek out support as needed when they want support in the context where they're actually looking for something at points of need. Um, So, the, the the system really isn't set up to deal with how people actually genuinely struggle, which is in bursts <laughs> um, at different points in their life for totally different reasons. Um, and, you know, the, the therapists that have been trained today just aren't given tools to be able to deal with that. Mm. Um, and the, You know gatekeeping that goes on too around who's allowed to deliver interventions where we only see trained professionals, trained mental health care providers as folks who are capable of helping uh, is also really constraining our ability to support folks at scale. In fact, the research, uh, if you look at big meta-analyses of psychotherapy treatment effects, Uh, meta-analyses, meaning combining all the randomized trials that have been done on psychotherapy and looking at all of them together to see statistically, do these things work? Mm -hmm. If you look at how much training the providers have had compared to how effective therapies are, there is almost no relation at all. Really? <laughs> um, absolutely. And in fact, when you, uh, w- when you look at these studies, you often see that graduate student therapists who often have no training get the best outcomes for psychotherapy uh, compared to more seasoned clinicians who are often uh, sort of stuck in particular ways of doing things um, and have their own assumptions in how treatment should go and what matters in treatment. Oh, okay. um, versus the students who were more responsive to supervision and direction, um, and really working really hard <laughs> to oh. <laughs> implement treatments faithfully. Interesting.
0: Um, so, is that is so, that sort of the difference that you found is what you just described there? Or is there are there are, is there something more specific these grad students are doing or bringing to the equation? I just I, I had not heard that before, so I'm just oh, I'm just yeah. very curious about this.
1: Yeah. So. Often you see the folks uh, with less formal experience, less formal training, fewer years as a therapist, um, relying less on their assumptions about what's going to work Mm. and more on what is the sort of next step in the evidence-based treatment that they're using. Interesting. (laughs) Um, So relying less on intuition um, and more on what the steps are in front of them. But by the same token, there's a lot of research out there that peer supporters people with no mental health care training whatsoever can deliver simplified evidence-based treatments successfully. Um, Ah. And we aren't taking advantage of that at all. So I think the historical assumptions about who has to deliver interventions, when and how they can be delivered as in, in structured 16 week sessions versus as needed when problems arise. Uh, and how long they have to be in order for treatment to have something good that it can help people with. Um, All of those assumptions have really led us down this really uh, restrictive path of how therapy can be supportive to people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How interesting. And let me be clear with the audience, just in case this term might... Be a little confusing. Uh, When she says interventions, we're not talking about cult interventions. (laughs) And I know that that, that we're just crossing fields with that same word. Uh, Obviously, we're talking about mental health interventions, which, you know, treatment, going and getting some help from a therapist is is what we're talking about there. Um, And I, you know, I do consultation with people, from my experience and from from education and guidance with people in a post-cult experience or a post-coercive situation. And I've always gone to great lengths every time I bring this up to say, I am not a licensed therapist, I am not doing therapy, I'm not a counselor, this is not psychological counseling or therapy you're going to get from me. I always go out of my way to say that to differentiate make it clear because of those lines in the sand between licensed therapy that is overseen by regulatory bodies and life coaches which i don't want to right. you know fall into that pit of you know i'm a really good life coach i'm not there for that either i'm not your motivational speaker right i i educate i inform and i and i listen and i try to understand and that's that's it that's that's what I'm doing, and it really is helpful to people in really significant ways. Just to do that, I know it is, and it's wonderful work to do. Um, but it doesn't. But it does stop short of trying to go into any sort of treatment modalities I'm aware of
1: mm-hmm. or therapeutic yeah.
0: interventions. Right?
1: Well. Yes. Hmm. And it's so difficult to draw a clear line between these things It is because so many things can be therapeutic that aren't therapy. And so many of the skills that are taught in cognitive behavioral therapy are just life skills. And (laughs) so teaching a skill from cognitive behavioral therapy, like how to talk back to negative thoughts that are automatic in your head. That's a skill that's you don't need a PhD to teach that skill or to understand its usefulness, Mm -hmm. Um, but it can still be helpful when delivered by a non-professional or a professional. So certainly it's important to be clear about whether you're licensed or not, whether you're under a regulatory body or not, what you can and can't provide in terms of long-term support, but discounting the ability of peers to be supportive and useful in ways that are tangible and lasting I think has been to the mental health care profession's detriment. Um, And yeah, I think it's a lot to do with guild wars and protecting professional scope and all of this. But at the end of the day, there's never going to be Enough psychologists for everyone who wants one. (laughs) Enough psychiatrists for everyone who needs one. Um, So why not lean into these non-traditional ways of expanding the scope of what we can offer?
0: Well, that's and see, and that's very sensible. When you look at it from a project manager sort of resource management position, it becomes inevitable. I mean, it. it, Mm -hmm. it, And this is why I think not only for tradition's sake, or or because it's kind of always been that way, sake, but because it continues to be necessary. This is why we see parents, counselors, or sorry, uh, teachers, uh, ministers, you know, Uncle Joe fill in for these faux therapist roles in people's lives because they just don't have any trained professionals or people to go see that they can have access to. And, and so all these other, and unfortunately on the, on the really negative societal end of this, we also see an awful lot of this function being offloaded on our law enforcement officials and police, right. Right. Who have, are not that they're a whole different function of the societal ladder. Right. And so, but, but when that whole functions is just left to, to literally lay on the street, then it be- ends up becoming law enforcement's problem. And that's not optimum because they're not trained for that. They're trained for a whole different set of skills. Right. Anyway, it's kind of a big mess. Now, that all It's problems said, on problems. It's problems <laughs> on problems. That's right. Wheels in wheels. Now, I guess coming down to you and your book and what you're proposing or some of what you've been talking about, maybe we should start with you personally. Because you have your own background in history uh, and sort of what we might say epiphanal moment or change, right? Moment of great change. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Sure. So before I professionally went into clinical psychology, I had already been very well acquainted with the field in general, but on the other side of things, as a patient. Um, Around Mm -hmm. age 12, I developed really quickly and really severely uh, an eating disorder, anorexia that became pretty much my entire life for a while there. Mm. Um, I was in and out of every level of treatment you could imagine um, from intensive programs and and hospitals and day treatment centers to outpatient centers for a very long time. But before I got into treatment in the first place, when the problems first started emerging, I vividly remember my mom calling every clinician in the phone back then. There were phone books (laughs) in the phone book. um, (laughs) Oh, back in those house days.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And trying to figure out who could see me. And there were no specialists without a waiting list. Right. And I wasn't eating and a waiting list doesn't agree with that medical situation. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being amazed because I never had a wait. I never heard of a waiting list for a doctor before that wasn't something I was familiar with. You just show up at the doctor and get your checkup and go home. Um, But it was really startling to me how much she was struggling to find anyone. Uh, At that time, I also learned that the cost of a single day in uh, residential treatment, which is a common sort of higher level of treatment for eating disorders uh, was about the cost of, rent for a month in uh, a New York city apartment, which is where I grew up. Right. Um, Which is not reasonable for the vast majority of humans Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this world. Mm -hmm. Um, So I cycled in and out of different sort of short term treatment options. I never really got the support I needed consistently in any one setting. Um, Big problem with eating disorder treatment is that insurance, We'll stop paying for it depending on if you're at a certain weight um, so often you make some progress um, you get your weight up uh, through refeeding and through intensive care and then they're like oh you reached the magical number that means you don't need treatment anymore so we're no longer paying for this so a lot of people are stuck in this cycle in and out
2: right
1: um that went on for a long time mm. <laughs> um to the point where when i was in my phd program in, in graduate school, I, uh, actually put myself into intensive treatment. Um, so I was in treatment for three hours a day while also getting my PhD in clinical psychology, which is something I didn't tell a soul <laughs> wow. in my program for fear of, uh, being deemed, uh, not capable, uh, of, of, of doing what I was doing in the program.
0: Wow. See, so there's, there's more stigma this, right there.
1: I know. Even I, while I,
0: you're training to be in the field.
1: Oh, especially within the field. That's a whole different topic for another, (laughs) another day. But in any case, uh, so I was in this treatment program. I went to treatment for three hours a day, supervised meal, two group therapy sessions. And I remember one day vividly (laughs) that is more memorable than probably more than a decade of treatment I had received before that. Um, what happened was I went to the supervised dinner. I, had decided that day for some reason to try a food that was very hard for me to eat that I hadn't eaten in a long time. And one of the other patients in my program went up to me afterwards and asked me how I did that. Well (laughs) what led me to do that today because she knew from other group sessions that I'd have trouble with that food. Um, And I told her, you know, I don't know, I was never going to be ready (laughs) I ever, I don't think. So I just did it because I don't think there was any other option. And I just kind of decided to do it. And she turned to me and she said, but what if that's like the whole thing though? What if that's all of treatment, just deciding to do stuff and waking up the next morning. And even if you didn't do stuff the day before that was helpful, deciding again that you're going to do something hard and then just keep doing that over and over again forever. <laughs> right. And I, I was so irritated at first <laughs> because that is like, how could you oversimplify it that much? I wouldn't have been in treatment for more than a decade. If that were actually the answer that's simplify like that's discounting so much of my experience. And then I thought about that and almost nothing else for like hours and realized that maybe she was onto something mm. because it did work that day. She had a point. I did eat the food. So I decided to give it a try and it was extremely hard. It was exceptionally hard to do because it's fighting back against every impulse that you've developed and practiced over a decade um, of illness. But the more I did it, the more I just woke up one day and decided to do one hard thing, the more I realized, uh, uh, yeah, that, yep, (laughs) that actually does really make a difference. Because I was able to show myself that I could do stuff I never thought I could do
2: right. um,
1: over and over again. Right. And that moment where I entertained the idea that she had a point and that maybe I could just do things that totally scared me. And maybe that would help. That realization, that willingness, that shift that happened for me was the reason I started to get better after that and Mm -hmm. was the reason that I've been able to maintain not being 100% perfect all the time, but knowing that I can always do something, Mm -hmm. Uh, knowing that I can always take a step in the right direction comes back to that moment. Um, And in my PhD program, when I saw folks able to come to just one session and no other sessions um, in community clinics and real-world practice settings, I started to wonder a lot whether there was more i could be doing in that first session to help people Mm -hmm. and eventually after researching this for a while i connected that back to that moment in my own treatment where one interaction mattered in a really outsized way for me and since then i've been thinking about and studying and working towards how can we make those moments for people As much as possible, how can we scale up opportunities to have moments like that or epiphanies um, that help people turn a corner, um, that help people see things in a different way that allows doors to open or appear that they never thought were there. Um, And yeah, I didn't realize at the time that she had given me a single session intervention, (laughs) but now I really think she had and I'm very grateful for it.
0: Right. Exactly. And we're going to go into that in a little bit here, this single session intervention, this SSI concept, um, because it is fascinating. And I have to ask you about something or bring something up that's been on my mind for months now um, that came at me from the neuroscience direction. And it had to do with um, with with sociopaths and how there are cases on record or of sociopaths who have had these what you know epiphanies these epiphanal moments these like what what you know kind of come to jesus moment this i saw the light moment not necessarily always religiously oriented either although sometimes and it's the it's a point of massive sudden change neurologically mm-hmm. i mean it ha- you know where the person's rewriting vast amounts of their personality or their identity or their character very quickly that's why i say it's mm-hmm. this it's like this mass moment right mass change mm-hmm. uh your moral foundations turn around or change on a dime right you go you're in the cult yeah. now you're out of the cult right like this is the yeah. this is the this is the thing that is being looked for in a cult intervention which you normally go about through conversation, not the whole brainwashing, deprogramming crap of the of the yesteryear. But, you know, you sit a person down, you have talk with them, you show them some facts that they're willing to consider with the amygdala turned down a little bit so it's not all fight or flight. And right. and they're willing to receive information into the frontal lobes and then they can process yeah. it without the emotional, you know, uh, double downing mm-hmm. on the beliefs. Mm-hmm. And you get a change. And that change mm-hmm. can be accompanied by this kind of, <gasps> moment. And I believe these are significant. before I was familiar with with you and your work here, but you're talking the same language I've been thinking yeah. and talking to other professionals about about these epiphanal moments. That's how I've been referring yeah. to them. Um, yeah. It seems there's power there. Have and and you mentioned um, in one of your uh, writings how teaching neuroplasticity and the single session mindset to teens can help them work through anxiety and depression. This was the subject of one of your studies. Can mm-hmm. we talk about that now? Because I'd like to know more details about you know this moment you had leading to research, leading to real studies. W- what have you Absolutely.
1: found? Uh, Well, there's been a whole lot in the past uh, now, what, since 2016, eight years that I've been doing this work. Mm. Um, So, the first study I did uh, on single session approaches was just to see if, (laughs) just do a study on has anyone looked at this?
2: Yeah, (laughs) Has anyone
1: actually (laughs) thought of this before or am Mm. I the first person ever to think about this idea that one session can matter? Uh, That one moment can matter. And I completely was not the first person to have this idea, Uh, which surprises no one. There are no new ideas. (laughs) I
0: I always run into Um, (laughs) that myself. I have probably had about five or six times in the last 10 years where I went, wait a minute, does that mean... I've never heard of this before. Maybe this means, and then you go look it up. Oh yeah. 50 years ago, they figured that out. Yeah. There's
1: a whole field of this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Right. (laughs) So in 2016, uh, I started down this path of like really feeling really frustrated that a lot of my patients were only coming once to therapy. Can I do something in that first session to make a difference? Mm -hmm. Did a systematic review of what is the state of the literature on single session therapies and do they work? And I found 50 randomized trials of single session mental health therapies back in 2016, before I started doing any of the research on this topic. Um, There were uh, actually, uh, across all these randomized trials, uh, my advisor then and I, who had spent his career studying 16 session psychotherapies on average, Mm -hmm. full-length psychotherapies, we were able to compare What is the effectiveness of a single session therapy for things like anxiety, behavior problems, depression in young people? Because that's who I was focused on under 18 versus a full length course of therapy for those same problems. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And when we graphed it, we found that the overall effects for both of those categories were really similar, like frighteningly similar, like almost the same.
0: (laughs) And you wonder, and, like, d- how does that make any sense? Now, let yeah, me ask you real that, quick. When compared to the control group of no therapy, there was a difference, though.
1: Yes. So okay. this is single session interventions compared to no treatment controls yeah. versus full-length therapy compared to no treatment there we controls. Go. Okay. Those differences were the, almost the same.
2: Wow. Full-length
1: therapy was a little bit bigger but not as much as you'd want it to be right? <laughs> um, as, as a psychotherapist. Right. So my advisor thought I had made a coding error. Long story short, there was no coding error. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, was, <laughs> that was just how <laughs> the data were telling the story, which wow. made me really excited that, and, and really motivated to figure out what about one session can actually right. make that kind of difference. Right. So many surprising things about that study. First of all, uh, single session therapies that were provided professionally delivered versus those that were self-guided like online. No difference in overall effectiveness. Um, I know it was remarkable. So that got me really interested too. And wow, super scalable to think about online supports versus one-to-one person delivered supports by professionals. So I started doing work on internet-based therapies and seeing if we can embed single sessions into something that teenagers can do themselves. Uh, So that led to this research on a single session intervention, teaching the idea that people can change. Um, And this is the work that you brought up with neuroplasticity and things. So um, the single session intervention, this is based on research uh, out of Stanford University from Carol Dweck uh, on this idea of growth mindset. Mostly, this idea of growth mindset, which means your ability or trait is malleable rather than fixed. You are not born good or bad at math. You are not born this kind of person or that kind of person. Everyone has potential for change. Um, That's the idea that I brought into this therapy, this single session therapy for teens with anxiety and depression, Mm -hmm. basically saying that because of how brains are built. Because of neuroplasticity, which all of us have because we are human, Mm -hmm. it is impossible for depression, the experience of depression, to be set in stone. It is impossible for the experience of anxiety to be set in stone. Our brains are built for change and respond to our environments and what we do and how we cope with different stressors. Mm -hmm. So we can actually shift how our brain responds to stress. And that can lead to differences in symptoms of anxiety and depression right? So what you do can shape how you feel, the trajectory of your symptoms and your struggles. You are not a depressed person inherently. That's something that can be changed, Um, which for teenagers is often a new concept. Um, A lot of them really enjoy learning about the science and not being told, I'm an adult, I know how to cope, but rather being told, here's some science, draw your own conclusions about what's going to help for you. So they're elevated and empowered in that way. Uh, And that's what they learn in this single session, self-guided program that lasts about 20 minutes. Uh, They hear stories from other teens who've used this idea of neuroplasticity and how people can change to get through stressors and struggles in their lives. They write advice to other teens who are struggling with depression and anxiety to be helpers themselves and explain the concepts they just learned to other people. Uh, And this single session program that's totally no therapist involved, self-guided, uh, completable on any internet-equipped device, I ran it through a randomized trial, compared it to uh, another single-session activity that was kind of non-specific, non-directive, just telling people that sharing feelings is good and you should do it. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. designed to mimic kind of supportive counseling. Um, compared to that, the single-session intervention led to significant reductions in teens' depression and anxiety symptoms over nine months, Um, so this 20 minute program had effects that lasted three quarters of a year, Nice. and this was a trial of 96 teens. Of course, we wanted to do it on a bigger scale. We've since, uh, in my, in our lab, we've uh, conducted randomized trials of different kinds of computerized and non-professionally delivered single session therapies to tens of thousands of teens across the U S and in other countries. And a lot of them are free and available online for anyone to use. Wow. And we consistently find that they can actually do something. And it all comes back to this idea that, you know, empowering people to realize not just that change is possible, but how it's possible and giving them the scientific explanation for that can be a really powerful turning point uh, in people's recovery trajectories. Not that it's going to replace other forms of therapy. Of course not. But what I say about single session programs is that they're capable of filling these gaps that traditional psychotherapies weren't built to. They weren't supposed to fill them. They were built for a different context in a different subset of the population who can access care. Right. So I do think they are uh, an, an important missing piece, these single session approaches to filling in what our mental health care system can't address right now.
0: Oh, I could not agree more. And and it covers a few things I've got to ask you about or comment on here. First off, there's a psychoeducation component here, right? You're teaching somebody something. You're not just, you know, tell me about your problems. Okay, listening to it. Okay, good. We're done. Bye. It's let me tell you something about yourself you might not know right now. Or let me remind you about something about yourself that is true for all human beings that you might want to know. That is psychoeducation. Right. Because it's yeah, it, precisely. And, and that um, I'm I, I biggest thing I support <laughs> in treatment of any kind is understand what the hell's happening. What is what is being done to yeah. you even. Right. Um, I, 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 I and that doesn't mean you're sitting there analyzing your analyst. I just mean if you're going to get CBT or something like find out what it is. Right. Like find out what these things are. Find out a little bit about yourself. I, I classify this under critical thinking and emotional intelligence and that these are key skill sets for anybody, any human to have, certainly ex-cult members, because it's lack of that knowledge that um, makes us uh, susceptible to um, cult recruitment in the first place, to being deceived and de- mm-hmm. and deceptive, you know, is, is emotional manipulation. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that that education component is crucial to this. But I have to ask now, so it's almost it it, it almost sounds like what you're suggesting is, okay, look, if we do this 20-minute thing where we simply let people know, especially kids or or teens, hey, look, something can be done about it. It's like like you can change. It's not a set-in-stone thing. You're not fixed for the rest of your life in this hellhole condition you feel you're stuck in right now. That's a real good message. That's a good message for anybody to hear because it's absolutely true. But that alone seems to give a nine-month period of, oh, okay, I can calm down a little bit now. Is that sort of the the idea here?
1: So it can provide some relief yeah. that we can statistically detect yeah. nine months later. Okay. Will it cure all future mental health problems? Absolutely yeah. not.
0: No, of <laughs> it's course, not no.
1: here. It's giving people and a different path forward. And the way we think of these interventions working is that they open up one possibility for somebody to take one action that's different or respond one way to a stressor that's different than they would have otherwise. And that works out for them. And then they do it again. And then they do it again. So it's not that all the change is happening in that single session. It's that it triggers a positive spiral essentially of cumulative change over time that can over practice and over realizing, wow, this is true for me. <laughs> this can work. That's the change agent. Okay. Right? Okay. But the single session intervention can offer that initial epiphany that is not the sum of all the change but is the beginning of the change
0: understood so then when we talk about single session interventions or ssis we're not talking about a a completion of treatment suggestion we're talking about well here's an initial and now this opens the door for us to now maybe move forward so how is this different from what we were talking about before in terms of, oh, well, you now you're committed to a four month program. It's going to take 16 of these SSIs before you're done or that that's not the model here. So how is this different? That's not the model. Yeah.
1: So some folks who study single session approaches call this a one at a time approach to Uh support where treatment has no specified length. It is not long or short. It's just made up of moments that matter for you. And for some people, one moment will be the moment they need. And right. that will lead to the cascade of changes that will allow them to feel like they've gotten the support that they were looking for. For other people's, for other people, maybe they'll engage with one single session intervention, and that'll open the door for them to consider longer-term treatment if it's, if it's, if it's available to them. Mm. Or that will open the door to coping with a specific problem they have. But next month, maybe they have another problem so they can engage in another single session support. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: So there's no treatment dropout. There's no long or short treatment. There's just standalone opportunities to trigger change that's important to you. And that's a very different approach than we're gonna commit to once weekly for this long, no matter what, with the assumption that if you don't complete the full course of treatment, nothing will happen.
0: Right, right. It's always shocking to me. It shouldn't be. I should be better at this, but it always blows me away to run into some of the stigmas and some of the false and misinformation out there about this topic uh, from people who don't get therapy or can't get therapy or can't access it or or even can, but don't. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it, it just always is so sad to me about the stigmatization, but also the gross levels of misunderstanding about this. And then on top of that, I think is built the resentments and the anger and the sort of, uh, excuse me, the, you know, where we get the anti-psychiatry movement and the sort of like, oh, well now they're so bad that they're actually hurting people kind of thing, you know?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people have you know, had negative treatment experiences and a history of negative treatment experiences predicts less treatment seeking, of course. Um, But it, you know, it's all coming from a place that's understandable um, from lived experience of some kind that taught them this isn't safe for me or this isn't good for me. Exactly. Um, So I understand where folks are coming from. And I think embracing a more flexible system that adjusts to people's needs when they see (laughs) you know, a a, a want or a need for support Um, and allowing patients to take the lead on when support is needed and when it's not rather than professionals. It's just a very different model uh, than the one that we're used to.
0: Exactly. Um, Well, speaking of that, there is another thing I'd like to ask you about that I was um, exposed to on my education, which is in the UK. There is a there now this is going over into psychiatry. And you mm-hmm. are a clinical psychologist, and I know that these are two different things. Yeah. And I'm actually asking about this for that reason. I wanted to ask you your take on what's happening over in the psychiatry land, too, because there's some changes happening over there of a similar nature. Uh, whereas in the UK, they have something that they have now proposed for, the, for their um, National Institute of Mental Health as a formal model of, of, of how they're going to pursue mental health treatment called uh, Power Threat Meaning framework where they've where it's not diagnostic it's not we're going to put a label on you it's more of an analysis and discussion and and working with the person on power dynamics in their life and what threats those power dynamics or or imbalanced power dynamics have on the person's life and relationships and what meaning they draw from that it's 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 kind of um certainly got elements of psychological approach to it but it's a psychiatric approach they're rejecting the medical model going yeah this whole thing of treatments and labels and all of this let's not do that anymore let's try something different i i can't help but think of what you're doing and what they're doing in the same kind of spectrum a little bit what what are your thoughts about that
1: yeah, so I think elements of that approach are really interesting, and in that it's definitely a departure from the traditional medical model of labeling people and assigning them specific treatments in a very top down way. It right. sounds like it's centering their lived experiences a little bit more in their own interpretation of their own ex- uh, struggles and relationships in their lives, right.
2: um,
1: which could be great. Um, what I would be curious to learn more about with that approach is how is it helping people take their best next step? So what what it sounds like to me is highly reflective Mm -hmm. and highly contemplative Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and just observing and understanding things in their environment, which can be great. And I'm pretty action-oriented. And I wonder about what is this going to help people do? How is this going to empower people to take a step that's meaningful for them? And that's where I see a little bit of a difference Um, in what most single session interventions would support people in doing, which is what is your best next step? What are you going to do? What can what strength or capacity do you observe in yourself now that you didn't before that you can use Mm. to take steps that matter versus how do you now differently understand the world around you?
0: Right. Um, Right. Right.
1: Alone without any action connection.
0: So, Fair enough, and I and I don't mean by bringing it up that I'm endorsing power threat meaning as a framework oh, or no. system. Oh
1: no, I was just—it's um, a really interesting idea. I actually need to read up more about it.
0: I I do too. It was introduced to us. We covered some things about it, but I didn't um, go deep dive on it. I merely noted it at the time as, oh, here's something psychiatry is doing that yeah. is novel and different. You know, that good for is, them. It's
1: definitely I'm pleasantly surprised to hear psychiatrists <laughs> are spearheading this. Um, yeah, it's not something I uh, expected to hear about, but that's that's really intriguing.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly what I thought, and um, I thought you know perhaps um, drawing meaning or or reflection from perhaps responsibility in one's life might also be another approach rather than power dynamic struggles, but. I think there's lots of approaches. I think there's lots of approaches to it. The point is it's not pharmaceutical. Pharmaceutical. And it's not, um, right. you know, medical model. And those two things mm. are such a radical departure for psychiatry these days yeah. that when I look at that happening and formally being adopted in the UK, this is not just some wild one guy having a thought about this. This is, <laughs> th- you know, that made a YouTube video. This is a th- this is a thing that's happening right now, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as are your changes and your progress with this. And I'm thinking to myself right now that if this sort of thing catches on in the studies you're doing that I've looked up at the literature on it. And it's it's valid stuff, folks. This is not just some, again, this isn't, I'm not talking to some person who just wrote some book. (laughs) This is actual (laughs) research science stuff we're talking about today. And um, I'm, it gives me some hope. Some like, oh, there could be a vision of a change of these fields moving quite drastically away from the sort of fixed models that we've sort of had in our mind for the last 30 years ever since you know there was a sort of a massive shift in psychology and psychiatry I believe following you know the 60s and 70s reformation of one flew with a cuckoo's nest all those exposures and all that abusive nonsense that was going on that they were calling psychiatry Mm -hmm. I could you know go on for that for a long time but Anyway, I guess what I wanted to give all that lead up to was to ask you now, where do you see all this going 10 years, 20 years from now? Do you think this is moving the dial and that we're seeing maybe the possibility of systemic change with this?
1: I'm optimistic and also still working really hard to okay. <laughs> realize that optimism. Uh, we can't just uh, take a deep breath and relax right. <laughs> at this point. There's a lot of work to do. Right. Uh, I'm I'm optimistic because particularly during the pandemic, there was such an exacerbation of the problems that have been present in the mental health system for a long time, but they were glaringly, they were impossible to ignore for anybody in the population as everybody was struggling mental health wise, while also seeing a total dearth of resources available to them. Yes. Um, this increased attention, um, made created an opening (laughs) for people to reconsider what had been sort of the status quo in mental health supports we see this with increasing embrace of teletherapy which was very unusual before the pandemic it was not the norm at all
0: that's right and
1: now it's everywhere and there are new pushes to increase um, psychologists and being able to practice across state lines and get licenses that allow them to see people via a zoom call for therapy right. in the next state over instead of having to get a whole separate license for that state. So it's already there, there have been policy shifts uh, in response to lack of access to treatment already. Good. But what I think I'm, I'm even more excited about is the the partnerships that my lab has been building and the work that we've been doing in collaboration with nonprofits, with state mental health agencies, uh, with healthcare si- systems who are all really trying to reckon and actually do something about the fact that they are seeing so many people fall through the cracks uh, and they don't want that to happen anymore. And, you know, as one example, my lab right now is working with a couple of state mental health agencies to create a new billing code through Medicaid for single session approaches that can be delivered uh, in outpatient settings for people on waiting lists for treatment. So that allows people, the minute they reach out for help, instead of being told, good job reaching out, now hold that thought for six months and just don't get worse, (laughs) we can offer them something that's evidence-based right away and prevent some of that deterioration. We're piloting a new billing code uh, to make that something that can be sustainably offered to people who are on Medicaid in the US. Excellent. So that'll be a that'll be a state by state effort, right? That's a a steep hill to climb, Um, but it's progress, and you know that's happening now. Uh, Mm. Another uh, piece that gives me optimism is uh, the work that I've done uh, and my my whole lab has done with um, some digital mental health nonprofits and social media organizations, Mm. um, where we've actually embedded single session online supports into social media platforms, which are often associated with worse mental health for people, right? right? Or at least in the media's uh, narrative about it. (laughs) Um, In any case, a lot of people who are on social media platforms use those platforms to search for triggering content. They search for depression or suicide in hopes of finding other people who are experiencing similar things to them. But those are also moments where people are indicating that they need help on these platforms. So what we've done in collaboration with an awesome nonprofit called Coco, which partners with social media companies to embed mental health supports directly into their platforms. We've programmed single session online supports to pop up right when people search for those kinds of things on social media platforms so that we can offer support to people at points of need rather than waiting for them to navigate this impossible to navigate system and eventually find help. So single session interventions can be pushed into these gaps where there are no other supports, into moments where people could really use something, but that they aren't necessarily looking for it. Um, and those kinds of partnerships and the work we've been doing in those areas um, and the the clinics we've been working with to embed things on waiting lists, it gives me a lot of hope. Um, but it ultimately, system-level change is going to take uh, more than hope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we're going to keep going.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're not... You're understating the problem quite quite a bit, I'm sure. Just by you know, when you say things like, "Well, it's state by state," and it's this. I mean, it's like there's so many layers to this <laughs> stuff. If you guys only knew, I mean, it's just you know, people want simple, and unfortunately, that's not how healthcare is organized. You no, know. uh, nope.
1: and know. we're dealing with not just healthcare, but we're dealing with gaps within healthcare systems and the gaps outside of healthcare systems. So our lab is trying to make sure that the single session interventions are reaching people who never get in the front door of any healthcare system, right. not just the people who've been overrepresented in our clinical trials. Um, and trying to marry those two uh, universes has been an adventure <laughs> and it continues to be, but uh, it is it is hopeful.
0: Wow. Well, this is so, so interesting. I, I have one other thing to, to um relate to you that i want to ask you about because it has to do with culty stuff and you might be interested in this um in relation to some of what you described in your work um because what i get the idea of from these short single session interventions and these are designed to be this way they're that's that's the whole point of them uh like 20 minutes you said and it has this psychoeducational component, and then you're finding, you know, well, what is it, you know, you can do something about, and then getting the person onto that, and it's a cause, it's a call to action kind of thing. Am I understanding this right?
1: Yep, you got it.
0: Good. And it kind of puts the person in the driver's seat of their own, hey, you mm-hmm. can do something about this, go do it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's awesome. That is an awesome message, but I can't help thinking to myself right now that It's interesting how similar buttons are pushed. This is how I'm gonna I'm gonna try to frame this in a very different way because I'm not connecting these two things at all. They're very different. I think I know what you're gonna say. And I
1: agree already. (laughs) Right?
0: But when you do cult recruitment,
2: yeah.
0: Right? These are the buttons you're pushing. Is you have somebody walk in the door who is positive, some emotional need they have Isn't being fulfilled and there's nothing they can do about it. But here they are thinking maybe possibly something, maybe they have some secret, one weird trick or something they're going to show me. Yep. Right? And it's going to work. And the mere hope that, because they have to reveal what that hidden emotional need is, it's usually a secret.
1: 100%.
0: Right? -hmm. They do so. They get a hope. They get this, like, I I mean, Hubbard even called it. They get to what's called need of change. Yes. They feel they need to change it, right? And that they now are empowered to do so. And that creates what I have described for years as a euphoria inducing or awe moment where they, yep. Right. And they feel better. And the reason I'm bringing this up is it occurs to me that if this is a psychologically therapeutic thing to do to somebody, of course, this is why they would find this helped me. Yeah. And stick with the cult. Now, having said all of that, you seem to be agreeing with me. What's your what's what's your what's your take on this?
1: I I couldn't agree more. And this is something that I've brought up in various conversations that uh, where folks in my own field have pushed back on the idea that one session can do something. Oh. Um it really can, and in any direction.
2: Yeah. exactly. <laughs> and,
1: um <laughs> yes. moments can matter for a lot of different reasons. They don't yes. always have to be for good reasons. Yes. Um, they can be driving people towards that state of hopefulness that drives behavior change. Um Theories of behavior change, self-determination theory, for example, super well-validated social psych theory of how behavior change happens. If you can meet somebody's basic psychological needs for a sense of autonomy, a sense of competency, and a sense of feeling related to others, then you're going to put them in a position where they can change their behavior. What they change their behavior to work towards (laughs) (laughs) is the key question, right? Yes. That can be driving someone's behavior towards a really unhelpful path or driving their behavior towards something that's going to be useful for them. Yes. So it is entirely true that the same psychological principles that you're describing as recruitment tactics can be used therapeutically because they're activating the same mechanisms, but for different reasons.
0: Thank you. Um,
1: So- that's something I often bring up when I'm, when I explain to people who are like, but, but can this do any, oh, oh, yes, it can absolutely do something. Yep. Um, and here's an example of how it's doing something all the time.
0: That's right. That's right. And this is the, see, it's so funny. Cause I can say, you know, truth information, I, it, it's always context specific. You can use the same brain mechanisms for pleasure or for pain. You can drive somebody to do good. You can drive somebody to do bad. They can drive themselves to do good. They can drive themselves to do bad. But how it happens, same mechanisms, right? It's the Mm -hmm. context that drives them one way or the other. If they're in a a Scientology recruitment space, (laughs) you know, all those feelings and all those ideas are going to be attributed to L. Ron Hubbard, Right. Yeah. And if you control that narrative in somebody's mind, if you can manipulate them so you control why they're feeling the way they're feeling, you own them.
1: Right. Right. You know? Yes. And, you know, attributing those feelings of hope and agency to something else or someone else that you have to keep seeking out versus yourself. That is, I think, a key distinction, too, in what makes these approaches therapeutic or not. That's right. Um, and in therapeutic contexts, the whole goal of this intervention and this kind of intervention is to help people realize and recognize the strains they already have. Yes. Uh, and what they can do and what they've done before to help themselves get to their best next step, not what somebody else somewhere can do for them to help them get to their best next step. So, same mechanisms, very different contexts for sure.
0: Big time, big time. And that's and that's the number one reason why I wanted to talk to you today is because all of your work actually is, it, you know, it has other corollaries, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Wh- wh- which is really cool to see uh, for, for the likes of me, because I've been thinking about this stuff, like I said, for quite a while now. And I've even, you know, I've coined, you know, you have these epiphany moments, these epiphanal moments, but you can also, you just described it. You literally just described it without us talking about it at all. You described what I've called maliphany's. Mm-hmm. Where you can be driven to a life of crime because you got away with it once, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, look at me. Right. And, and that's your breaking bad set of epiphanies. Same brain functions pushing you in the wrong direction. Right. So, yeah, uh, how interesting, huh? How interesting! But I really think it's it's I think it's an awareness of these kinds of things, the 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 malleability of our plasticity of our brain, the ability to to rewire, the ability to um, do cognitive behavioral therapy, or be able to take charge of how we control the 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 you know the the ha- action patterns or habits that we have. I think this puts us in the driver's seat in ways that are that are amazing if we can learn. And get enough people to learn about this quickly enough. And that's why I think SSIs are awesome. (laughs) So thank you very much for coming on my show today to talk about this. Let me ask you before we wrap up, are there any other key points to this that I didn't ask you about that you'd like to cover or let people know about today?
1: Um, I guess one point that comes to mind based on the last thing you brought up Mm -hmm. is also a difference in – sort of how cult recruitment works versus how these interventions tend to be distributed. Cult recruitment is very on lockdown, (laughs) right? It's it's happening in a very isolated environment. Yes. Yes. And the techniques aren't shared broadly. In fact, they're like protected, right? Yep. Single session interventions, 100% of the programs we've developed are open access and free. (laughs) Yes. And (laughs) um, if you're interested in learning more about them, our lab website, schleiderlab.org, actually has all of them available for anybody to try um, anonymously, anytime, anywhere you want to. Um, So please feel free to look around if you'd like to uh, check out what we've built. Um, Hopefully they'll help you or somebody else that you know.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, do check that out because the openness and transparency with this is actually uh, a really b- big green flag, if you will, versus a red flag. Right? I love yeah. that you're doing <laughs> that with your work, and um, and I think that's really important because so much of social psychology is locked down behind, behind proprietary paywalls, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, or on Madison Avenue or something. So it's it's good that we're learning about this stuff in in a place where we can get access to it. Um, and you can even, if you all have access to the literature out there, you can even look up Dr. Uh, Schleider's um, papers on this as well. Oh, and right. I'll
1: email them to you if you don't have them. We post them all on uh, Open Science Framework so that we can get around the paywall. <laughs> so they're all available. Beautiful. <laughs> you'd like to read them.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Now, also, where do people get your book and how do people contact you or reach out in your direction if after watching this show, they're like, oh, this is somebody I need to talk to.
1: Absolutely, so uh, I'm on faculty at Northwestern University. That's where my lab is located. Um, So my email is jessica.schleider at northwestern.edu. Please feel free to reach out if you're interested in this topic. I'd love to talk to you about it and learn from you. Um, In terms of where uh, folks can get the book, Anywhere books are sold, uh, January 30th, it's available anywhere. Uh, Amazon, um, Google Little Treatments, Big Effects, and it'll probably pop up pretty highly. Um, but yeah, I hope you get it and enjoy it.
0: Yes, absolutely. I really do recommend this book. I, I think if you've enjoyed this conversation, you'll love the book. It's very easy to read, and it is um, Interesting stuff. Again, little treatments, big effects, how to build meaningful moments that can transform your mental health. Dr. Schleider, thank you again for appearing on my podcast. I really appreciate it for giving me your time today and sharing your work.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. All right, folks out there. Yes, I'm talking to you now. Uh, If you have not subscribed to the show, please do so. And if you would like to support the show, uh, please do so. You can find links to that in the description section below. And uh, as talked about during the show, if you would like to reach out to me, get any help, consultation, guidance, direction, education, advice, whatever, you just want me to listen, uh, I can help. So reach out to me via my website, mncriticalthinking.com, or through the email address listed in the description section below. All right, guys, see you next week. Bye-bye.